2: to this special edition of Bring It On. We are a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 13 years. It's Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African-Americans.
0: Good evening, folks, and I'm Jim Sims. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African-American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour, right here on Bring It On. And I would also like to um, share this information. Also, joining us for the first time is future co host and anchor of this award winning radio show, Ms. Jennifer Crosley. And the studio goes, (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: ah! All right. Well,
2: welcome, Ms. Jennifer. Thank you. All right. Glad to have you. But first, an article from the South Seattle Emerald newspaper caught our attention. It weighed in on a particular trend that has ought, in America. The title of the article was simply, Why White Americans Call the Police on Black People in Public Spaces.
0: Now, the article begins with, this is how whiteness works. A white person feels uncomfortable or threatened by black people's mere existence in a space perceived as white only, and they call the police. no matter the consequence for the black person who more often than not isn't breaking the law or committing a crime look no further than the many examples of living life while black whether at a barbecue in oakland inspecting property for investment sitting in starbucks waiting for a friend or sleeping in a dormitory common space while studying
2: so we have two guests this evening that will help us to dissect this phenomenon They are IU professor and Bring It On contributor, Dr. Amrita Myers, and local Black Lives Matter activist, Mr. Vox Booker. But before we engage them in tonight's conversation, let's take a look at some of the bizarre incidents that have drawn vehement outrage from various sectors of society. A word of caution, some of of these may be a little unsettling. Now, first off, November
0: 2017 in Boston, Massachusetts, while buying a burger while black at a Boston Burger King in November 2015, Emory Ellis, who was homeless, attempted to pay for his morning meal with a $10 bill. But on this morning, the cashier accused Ellis of paying with fake money. Instead of handing Ellis his meal, the Burger King employee called the cops who arrested the then homeless man and hauled him off to jail. Ellis would spend more than three months behind bars before an investigation concluded that the $10 bill, in fact, had
2: been real all along. When they could have just held it up to the light, you know. Mm-hmm. And and here's another. April 12, 2018, Sarah Land, Alabama, being overcharged while black. A black woman was violently arrested inside a Waffle House and had the front of her shirt pulled down by police officers after a manager called 911 because of a dispute over an extra charge on the woman's bill. Officers threw her onto the floor, threatened to break her arm, placed a hand on her throat, and exposed her breast. The Alabama Police Department said Monday, that the Monday after it happened, that the three white officers acted appropriately.
0: Now, here are two more related incidents, and remember our word of wor- warning earlier. Some of these are unsettling. In May 4th, 2018, in New York City, Attorney Nancy Bedard and her 19-year-old daughter were arrested after they were accused of shoplifting by a white clerk, but later freed after police found nothing. And here is another Waffle House moment. Anthony Wall, age 22, of Fayetteville, North Carolina, said he was at Waffle House with a group after taking his 16-year-old sister to a prom. He and his sister argued with Waffle House employees after people in his group were cursed by employees for sitting at a table that had not been cleaned yet.
2: And, and here's one more before we get into our conversation. May 8th, Brentwood, Missouri, shopping at a Nordstrom while black. Three black teens shopping for a prom at a Nordstrom Rack in Brentwood near St. Louis faced the police after store employees suspected they were shoplifting. A white customer in the store called the men a bunch of bums as they looked through items. Nordstrom has since apologized and on Tuesday following the incident, the young men met with Nordstrom executives to discuss the incident and work on ways to prevent this from happening again at other company stores. And by the end, the, the president of Nordstrom Rack issued an apology also.
0: Once again, joining us this evening our IU professor and Bring It On contributor, Dr. Amrita Myers. I might just say, she's our girl, y'all. We miss <laughs> her. Well, hurry and get back. How you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Jim okay. and William. Nice to be okay. on. Okay. I'll be home and in five weeks, y'all, five all, weeks.
0: All right, and let me finish my promo. they kick me out of here. And we also invite or have or welcome to have with us local Black Lives Matter activist Mr. Vox Booker. Amrita and, and Vox, welcome to bring it on. Thank you for being here. Thank so, you, Jim. Uh, it's to be uh, back on.
2: Let, let me go ahead and start it off by asking you if you could put Everything that we just talked about in a historical context.
1: Happy to do so. Um, <clears throat> I wish, <laughs> I wish it, this was new, but it's not. Um, I'm a scholar of slavery, and this unfortunately stretches back a long ways. I know, under slavery and under Jim Crow, I'm, you know this uh, this kind of behavior of monitoring black folks, uh, putting black and brown bodies under surveillance, monitoring them uh, has a long history. Um, You know, black and brown people have always been constantly under surveillance and anytime black people were seen as being out of place or being in a place that uh, they made white people uncomfortable or were in spaces that white people felt that they didn't belong or white people considered to be white only, the um, right uh, it was white people came down on them like a ton of bricks, and under slavery, for example, it wasn 't just in uh, on the plantation space where that happened. Black people were constantly trying to find spaces where they were you know could be but be by themselves, where they could be outside of the range of white prying eyes, and so they would try to find places where they could get away from white surveillance, so they would try to sneak off the plantation for example to um, have religious ceremonies of their own, to have parties of their own, for example. But this was really dangerous because if they got, you know, if they got caught, they knew that the penalties would be really high. But the the they did it anyway because they were trying to find places where they could let down their guard and just be amongst themselves, by themselves, and have that those times where they could just let down their guard and be alone. But um, there were also times where they had to leave the plantation, you know, for legitimate reasons, right? They might be sent off the plantation to run errands, for example. But this also becomes dangerous because if they leave the plantation to run errands, they can be stopped at any time by any white person. You know, where are you going? Why are you here? Because black people off the plantation, on the roads, in the streets are always seen as being out of place right and so any white person doesn't just have to be the slave patrol any white person can stop any black person at any moment on the streets and demand to see papers why are you here where are you going who is your owner and they better have those papers to turn over to any white person whether it's the slave patrol or any white person to to you know to show proof that they have justifiable cause to be on the roads after dark in the streets and if they, you know and so they got it they have the they have to have those papers to turn over showing that their owner has given them justifiable reason to be off the plantation and if they don't have those papers to turn over they can be beaten they can be arrested they can be thrown in jail they can be dragged back to their masters plantation to be done with who knows what um, and and if they're if they pr- if they claim that they're free then they better have those free papers to turn over to prove that they're free. But even if they do, there are plenty of free blacks who, you know, have said, well, you know, we have evidence of free blacks saying that they were free, but those free papers were taken from them and torn up in front of them, burned in front of them, destroyed, and then those free blacks were... Are you know basically thrown in jail, sold on the auction block illegally, and sold into slavery. So having free papers didn't keep free blacks safe. So you know, under slavery, there's all kinds of surveillance, all kinds of monitoring, all kinds of things that are going on. White people are constantly surveilling them. And this kind of thing continues to happen under Jim Crow. After slavery is supposedly abolished and black people are free, black people are still being monitored. If they're out of space, right? If they're not in the appropriate waiting room, if they're on the wrong bus, if they're in the wrong neighborhoods, if they're using the wrong facilities, constant monitoring continues to happen and we fast-forward to Trayvon Martin walking in his own neighborhood we fast-forward to that college student falling asleep in the Yale common room we go to you know we go to that we go to these folks who are in restaurants walking in neighborhoods it doesn't matter this has a long history whenever white people see black and brown people in neighborhoods in restaurants on the streets barbecuing in parks if they feel that black and brown bodies are in quote unquote wrong spaces which basically means any place that they don't want them to be where they feel uncomfortable where they just decide that they don't want them to be they can demand to have them removed they can demand to see their identification, ask them why they're there, or just call 911 for no good reason. And we know historically that calling 911 can lead to people being threatened, assaulted, arrested, thrown in jail, or end up with them having 41 bullets in their body and then being put in the ground.
0: And Rita, what I'll ask you, uh, and then we'll, we'll like to hear from Vox, and, and everything you said, and thank you for that, that, that enlightens me and I think it enlightens our listeners. Um, Is there an effect, negative or positive, or is it all the same when you look at black and brown people? What about the multiracial population? Has that done any way, one way or another, to tip this social behavior that, that we're talking about this evening?
1: I don't think so, to be quite honest with you, because I've seen this behavior perpetrated against folks of color across the spectrum. I've seen this behavior perpetrated against um, Latinx people. I've seen this behavior perpetrated against indigenous folks. I've seen this behavior perpetrated against people of South Asian descent. And I've certainly seen this behavior perpetrated against our Muslim brothers and sisters are of Arabic descent as
0: well. Okay, and we'll and I ask that because I have heard the argument from the other side, the majority population, that it'll all be fine because you know, we have multiracial or mixed kids that will change all of that over time. I think those Allow of us that me. those of us that live that understand that to not be true, but I wanted um to just get that out here. Um, Vox, based on what we've been talking about, a historical or, or whatever else you'd like to contribute, what are your thoughts on that?
4: Uh, Jim, first of all, i like to say that I, I agree with what N- Anita said. There's a history in our nation of black people being policed uh, by the police and by people in general in the communities. Um, in particular, with today calling the police, I think what we need to look at is, is the history of the 911 system. Um, to tell the story, you know, the inception of 911, of, of it goes back to the 60s in 1964. Uh, there was a lady named Kitty uh, Genovese who was in Queens, New York. She was walking home at 3 a.m. and she was violently uh, assaulted by a black named uh, Winston Mosley. And uh, Mr. Mosley stabbed her in the back twice. She uh, yelled for help. Uh, She was able to get away for a moment and then he came back and and savagely raped her and and, and killed her. uh, what really made that spark off was uh, two weeks later, the New York Times had a new editor that had just got back into the nation. He was uh, anxious to, to kind of make a splash, and he learned about this story. And on the uh, front page of the New York Times the next day, there was an article that said, 37 uh, see women killed and do nothing. So th- that article was salacious in the 60s. This this, this beautiful, vibrant white woman had been killed by this black man without reason. It played into every fear that white America had had from, you know, the antebellum South through uh, Reconstruction to Jim Crow. Uh, and here was it on the front page of The Times. It ran in Life magazine. And this incident permeated American culture. You know, it, in that day and age, it was doing what we would say today was going viral. People heard about it in, in those Sunday church sermons. Uh, so the thing that was most often repeated was that I didn't want to get involved. And, and America, especially white America, was suddenly hyper-aware about being vigilant. Uh, we see that that played out today still, where we see slogans like, uh, see something, say something, that generate and, and perpetuate this fear of the other that America already has. Uh, and suddenly we go from people who live in our community to looking at everyone as strangers, as potential threats. And when you, when you couple that with the racial history that already exists in America, it just makes it a paddle keg. So you already have yeah. people who are programmed to, to call 911, and you already have
2: a, a, a nation with a racial history. You know, Amrita, you mentioned slave patrols quite a few times.
4: Yes.
2: Okay. And Vox mentioned going back and taking a look at the history. But so when you take a a look at police history, isn't it true that modern day police departments were born of of uh, the slave patrols uh, back in the day? And, and so the be, the behavior not, yeah. is what you said is still the same. You know, only thing changed were the times.
1: that's absolutely true i don't think a lot of uh people understand that the basis for our modern day police departments actually arose out of the slave patrols those were those actually laid the foundation for today's modern day police departments and so one of the things that i talk about in a lot of my public speeches as well as in my history classes is that it's very difficult to make the transition for police officers to go from seeing black people as property to seeing them as citizens, to go from seeing them as threats to property to seeing them as citizens? How do you teach them to do that? Because in the North, even in the North, even though the North gives up slavery slowly, it transitions slowly from being, because the North had slavery as well, even though the Northern colonies slowly transition out of being slave colonies to being quote unquote free col- free states, they still are they're still segregated in the nineteenth century. They still view black folks with suspicion. Um they still have a lot of early segregation laws in the nineteenth century before the Civil War, um, um, and a lot of anti-black bias laws and so they may not have slavery, but they definitely are not pro-black in a lot of ways, let's be clear, and, um, and so to, and the basis of the Northern Police Department still view blacks with great hostility, and they have a lot of, um, you know, laws that try to sort of keep blacks and whites separate in a lot of ways, including um, education laws and things of that nature. Um, and, they, and so to sort of try to, uh, try to, after the Civil War, to try to sort of explain that blacks are now equal citizens and should be protected by the police instead of seeing them as being threats to white property, that's a difficult transition to make.
0: Okay. And for the benefit of our listeners, we'd like to let you know that we're talking this evening with IU professor and Bring It On contributor, Dr. Amrita Myers and local Black Lives Matter activist, Vox Booker. Um, Vox, if I can get back with you, and Amrita, we will like to come with you at this as well. Many of us have been hearing, uh, this may be new terminology um, to many of us or to many of them, but what does it mean to be the term what does it mean to be woke to be woke, <laughs> W-O-K-E. What, what does that mean because uh, we're using that term and i think a lot of the the majority population have no idea really uh, what that's referring to, yeah, to a- am i am
4: i correct on
3: that yeah yeah <laughs> okay. i mean it
4: it's been almost satirized now to the point that uh, it's been used so much yes. but and in the um, original concept to be woke is to be awake to be aware of what's going on uh not only physically around you but uh as have pointed out the history of what brought us here, you know, how did we get here? Um, so we tell people to be woke uh, and, and be aware and, and be the change that they want to see. Okay. Um, yeah, I think
1: it's, it means to be socially conscious about, about racial injustice, right? To understand, in particular, about racial, race and gender injustice and things of that nature in particular.
4: Intersectionality. Exactly. Yes, Jennifer. Go ahead.
3: I was going to say, I I have a T-shirt, Stay Woke, and that's one of my favorite things. And like Vox was saying, it is definitely something that's oversaturated. But I listen to um, Angela Rye, and she's on CNN, and she talks about this a lot, and she has a podcast. I love her to death. Um, But one of the things that she says, instead of us saying that we need to stay woke, we need to work woke. Um, And that's one of the things I was just like, wow, that that makes so much more sense now, because if we stay like if we work woke, then we won't have to have these issues that we continue to have. And so I think for our counterparts and our allies, that's something that we I feel like as black folk, we definitely have to... That's on our brains a lot, is that we always have to... We've been staying woke before it was a thing in that way, but um, you definitely need to make sure that you are not only stay woke, but work woke as well. You know, just
2: a note, uh, racism is also oversaturated. (laughs) Uh, And (laughs) so let, let me go back to Box now, because one of the reasons that we invited Vox to come on today's show was because after all of the incidents that Jim and I uh, uh, mentioned in the opening, Vox had his own experience right here in liberal-minded Bloomington, Indiana. So Vox, why don't you go ahead and uh, share that with us? All right.
4: I'll, I'll give a short synopsis. I. Uh I've been utilizing lo- local transit a lot lately uh, i decided hey if i'm going to be riding the bus i should probably buy a bus pass and i bought bus passes before as a case manager working with clients but i've generally gone down to the main transit station uh and it was more convenient for me to go to the downtown location this time so i asked if i could could purchase the uh pass with my uh my debit card uh, the attendant assured me i could i purchased a pass uh, it was rather uneventful and i was on my way so as i was walking down the street uh, with my headphones in, just happy as could be, uh, I hear commotion in 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 the, in the distance. So I, I turn around. I, I see this attendant uh, flailing her arms around, you know, uh, and at first I think I must have forgotten something. So as I walk back, I can hear them making statements that I, I didn't pay for for my bus pass and that I need to come back. If I don't come back, she'll call the authorities. Or I'll be arrested. Uh, so I, I went back. I tried to stay calm. It was rather. Uh, disheartening, embarrassing for uh, so many people who came and went, and, and for a lot of those people, because it, it was 4 p.m. you know in, in Bloomington as rush hour, so to say, going into 5. Uh, a lot of folks came and went, and all they knew was that I stole the bus pass. So, I went back with the lady. Uh, she asked me to pay again. I total. her, uh, let me look at my bank statement. I can pull it up on my phone to make sure that it didn't go through. It had gone through. Uh, The attendant felt like that wasn't enough reassurance, and she demanded that I let her copy my uh, debit card. She wanted to take a photocopy. Uh, I was not inclined to acquiesce Mm -hmm. to that, so to say, so uh, no go. And from that point on, she continued to uh, assert that she was going to call the police, and the police were going to come and make me comply with what she was telling me to do. I countered that that wasn't the role of policing in America. That the police aren't going to to be her personal vanguard to come in and in, power in so powerful. And unfortunately, a lot of white folks feel like that. You know, when they when they call the police, that the police are going to come and be on their side, especially when you know when she's she's a notable white woman. I'm a young black man, uh, and until the police showed up, she she was still sure that that they were going to just make me do whatever she said, and.
2: I don't know how we get past that. So, so let let's break this down because I've never purchased a bus pass. so I'm not exactly sure how that procedure works. But you walk up and you present her your debit card, or you swipe it, or what?
4: Yeah. So they use the the, the, the Square system. If you okay, know, folks. Most folks. So she you observed you do that. So she, yeah, she literally she has an iPad. Uh, I pass her my debit card. She swipes my debit card. Uh, I sign <laughs> for it. She asked me if I wanted a uh, a copy of my receipt. I told her no because I've used the app before, uh, and that it would just send me an email.
2: So, so even though she observed you follow the proper procedures mm-hmm. and swipe your your card, she offered you a receipt. She still went from zero to sixty, and accusing you of of pretty much stealing, with no consideration what could have happened in between, or 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 also after you showed her your bank statement. Yeah. So,
4: so this is where a lot of folks you know, on, on social media ask, why was this a race thing? And this is where that, that bias that we come in, how we, how we see people. Uh, she decided to take it upon herself to go back into the system and look for secondary email verification that you get. Uh, she did not realize that that email verification could be delayed a few minutes, as what her supervisors have informed me. Uh, so that tells me that she must not commonly go back and look for this secondary check. That there must have been something about her interaction with me that made her decide to go back and look. Uh, and once that she even got that secondary email verification, she was still uh, rude and abrasive to me. And I'm a reasonable guy. At any time, if, if if the you know her attitude would have changed, or she would have uh, interacted with me more gracefully, or been apologetic, I would have just let it slide and, and we wouldn't be talking about it right now. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. So how
2: how did the uh, police res- respond to you?
4: Well, the police were very respectful for me. Okay, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I'm also leery if it would have been someone else, if it would have been a, a, a young black man or another person that they had negative interactions with in the past, uh, someone who might not have been able to pay for another bus pass and needed it and was fearful. You know, I could, I could have ran, there could have been a myriad of things that happened, uh, that luckily didn't happen. And I would like to credit the police department. I'm also aware that I am an activist and and I've been very vocal lately. And, uh, so they were very aware of who I was, but I would like to think that they hopefully encounter everyone that
2: way. And the Bloomington transit,
4: the transit uh, authority, once they were notified, uh, they worked hand in hand with me to quickly, it was a matter of eight days, um, that they made sure that there were policy changes that would be enacted, that they were looking for providers for to uh, put in training like implicit bias, uh, personality as far as being aware of, uh, positionality, I'm sorry, as far as being aware of class and uh, privilege and, and and just basic uh, a customer service accountability system.
0: Okay, and I will add, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, Fox, with some of the policy changes uh, that have arisen out of this incident, um, which, let's just face it, should be in place. It should be part of the protocols anyway. Um, But there will be implicit bias training enacted, um, some de-escalation training. Um, I believe there will be a review of customer service protocols. And it's also my understanding that there will be Um, through Centerstone or some agencies, some mental health um, bias training Mm -hmm. as well. Um, So in my mind, that is something that's very positive that have come from a very negative incident. Um,
4: Yeah, hopefully it helped them get woke, so to say. (laughs) Uh, If they want to wear, they're aware now. and, And it's a shame we weren't there, but this is part of that uncomfortable growing process that we go through to get there and hopefully they continue to to build upon this and no one else is treated that way
0: well and i think a a point that you brought um two things that i'm thinking supposing the officer that responded would have been black or brown officers how would that have changed the scenario and i know i'm not that's more of a rhetorical question i'm also thinking more in terms of black and brown officers how they fit into the blue or fellow white officers in that paradigm um, but what I really want to get toward here, and you, there's the point that you made. You are known. Yes. Um, I would like to think that I am. Um, for some of the public activities, I would like to think there's others. I think what was very important is you said, what if it was just uh, a an, another black young black man that was unknown or not as publicly recognized say, as you or I or, or William or didn't someone have else that like network that. That. that he has, um, a
2: social network yes
0: like. and, and that is the the institutionalized part that i think is the most troubling part
4: absolutely like I said, this woman was indignant with me until the police arrived and before i could, could introduce myself they said, they, we know who you are, Mr. Booker. And that was the moment where she realized that, that maybe this had been a mistake. Uh, and I would like for it not to be that someone has to feel like that power's been stripped away. I would like for them not to feel like they have that power with someone else to begin with. Right,
0: right. Okay. And amrita are you still with us? Yes, sir. All right. Of course, yes. Um, of yes. course, you know, we couldn't get Everybody rid of you going nowhere. <laughs> um, two things. First of all, and I'd like you to respond. And I think I know the answer to this, but our, our listening audience would be interested, I think. Is there, to your knowledge, any credible research that shows black people or, or black or brown people, people of color, are more prone to criminal activity? Um, is there any credible research that would reflect that? Um, Good Lord. And no. then. Well, I, I mean, I know that, but, you know, we're an educational <laughs> program, or try to be. Um, but again, I've heard some of these arguments on the other side, even years ago in college when we were talking about um, Durham and, and criminal justice and, and that and, and criminality.
1: Crime, crime is directly tied to poverty. This is a struct. This is not a. This is not a racial issue. It's a, a structural issue tied to issues of poverty. It's. It's not. It has nothing to do with race. Uh, it's not. But it's not about biology. It's a. It's a social structural issue about need and desperation. You can go anywhere worldwide, and when you put people in desperate circumstances, they're going to engage in desperate behavior.
0: I don't
1: care what color
0: they are. I I, I would agree with that. Um, And we've we've discussed and talked about the history of of kind of where we are to date. Um, Now, one of the things, and before we went on air, and I was talking to Vox and Jennifer here, there is a defense sometimes by the majority population in, in this country, in this town, wherever. And one of those are is, Um, And I do believe that through Facebook and some other mediums, Mr. Booker was asked this. Why are you racializing this? Um, Uh, Why why make it a race issue? I
1: chose not to respond, but I read it all. (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) we're we're giving permission on our show um, (laughs) to to discuss it because I think there is, uh, I wouldn't say a majority, um, but there is that viewpoint out there um, that is... Maybe it's used to maybe portray Mr. Booker or or the activism approach. Maybe it's just an institutionalized historical thing that that people get uncomfortable. Um, But what do you attribute that to from a defense standpoint? So it's why are you making this a race issue? Whereas we all know, or in my opinion, most interactions between different races, there is always race involved.
2: Can I jump in there real quick? Because I read that Facebook post also, and uh, what a lot of, I'll go ahead and say, whites don't realize, before Vox ever said a word or posted that video, it was already racial. And I think that that's where they really, really missed the point. It was racial when that woman ran out of the store and accused you of stealing that bus pass.
4: Yeah, I I think there are a lot of people who who don't have ears to understand that because they haven't seen through that lens. As as black people, we uh, are constantly aware of our race and how we're perceived. Uh, I was behind uh, an an old lady last night at the ATM, and I had to be aware that, uh, you know, even though she had someone with her, that I should keep my distance because I would make them uncomfortable. And that's an awareness that a, a lot of folks don't have to. They don't have to wear that every day. So. When I go in any situation, right. I'm I'm already heightened, uh, you, you know, and, and woke, so to say, about you know how people will perceive me, and it's just the the nature of the beast, especially that I live in a predominantly white area. Um,
1: All right. Because what we're talking about is in, is implicit or unconscious bias, right? That's the that's the absolutely main watchword or phrase that's now being sort of bandied around the country that that mm-hmm. we're talking about because at, you know. I don't know if i like the term or not but that's what we're talking about i mean it's it's frustrating on on a whole host of levels whether this woman realized what she was doing or not that's what she was engaging in right i mean a lot of the the a conversation on Vox's thread by this individual basically boiled down to she's not a nice person she engages in this sort of behavior with everybody Which led me to think, well, then she shouldn't have this job. She should have been fired a long time ago if she's this abrasive with everybody. But be that as it may, he was basically saying, oh, Vox played the race card. And my point is, people in this country know that when you call the police on black and brown people, we are more likely to end up getting shot and killed. Therefore, don't pick up the phone and call 911 you know it's really just that simple but because we are dealing with people who are who have been you know basically soaking up implicit or unconscious bias about black and brown people from the time they were born and therefore assume that we are all dangerous you know in you know, a criminal etc which is why Vox said I kept my distance at the ATM because White people clutch their purses, they assume that black men are all dangerous, et cetera. Because of unconscious or implicit bias, it, like William said, this was already a racialized incident from the start, from jump. Uh, so, so, yeah, we're talking, about, we're talking about a country that implicitly teaches white people from the beginning all of these stereotypes through books, from, through our teachers, And the educational system, through movies, through music, from every aspect of our culture, white and black and brown people are raised with all of these images coming at us 24-7, 365 from the time we're born that teach us unconsciously all the time that black and brown people are X, Y, and Z. By the time we hit college, we don't even know how much stereotypical baggage we're carrying. Yeah. About black and brown people. And so a lot of white people who will tell you to your face, I'm not racist. I don't have negative ideas about black and brown people. They don't even often know they're carrying these ideas. And then all of a sudden, when they're placed into certain situations, it comes pouring out of them and they don't even necessarily realize it.
4: Well, here's the thing. I think a lot of people have these biases, whether they be racial or class. Uh, But... We tend gender, to or
1: gender or gender
4: absolutely absolutely or gender uh, one of the things that, that that we've done in this nation is that we have such a a charged racial past that that people don't like to be called racist especially you know you know younger white folks they they see racism as bad uh they see themselves as good people and and racist people are bad people so it creates an uncomfortability uh a mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance with them where i'm a good person uh, and I don't actively try to go out and call anyone names, or you know, I, I'm not out there calling them the N word. So I'm not racist. So if you say that I'm think doing something racist, means
1: hanging somebody from a tree while you're wearing a bedsheet, they go to extremes. They we, go to extremes. They don't think that they don't realize the the gradations of racism, right? They think that it's like a really extreme act or behavior. Yeah.
4: So that's why when they see an incident like me. They don't have to look through that racial lens, this incident with me and the, the attendant. So they say, why did you bring race into this? And and it's really hard for them to understand that that is there, like you're already saying, William, because they, they just don't live that life. They don't have that burden. They have the privilege, as we say, to, to not have to be that scrutinized. Because you, know, you, you
2: made a good point about uh, recognizing that you might make someone uncomfortable uh, just by being one foot closer. But... I don't think that it's fair that you should ha- that you should bear that burden to ensure that that person is comfortable. You know, some some uh, black people can recognize those early indicators of uh, uh, a race-based uh, reaction or situation, and some don't. Especially the younger ones, and for the younger ones who do not recognize that, it almost makes for a perfect storm. Uh, take the Waffle House for example, where the young man right. went to the prom. You get uh, an attendant or a cashier or server who has an attitude, then they call the police who also show up with an attitude, and it's a lose-lose situation for that black person. Like That young man ended up being choked, uh, hemmed up against a wall by a police officer three or four times his size. It reminds me of the uh, young black girl who was in class and the resource officer came in and just slung her around like a bag of trash.
1: body slammed her in Charleston, South Carolina. Yes, that was a terrible
2: one. There's so many that we
4: could go through, and it's a preponderance of evidence that there's bias in this nation, that it still exists. Um...
1: There's one thing, too, William, that I need to say. Well, I can't remember if it was you or Jim who were talking about black and brown police officers and if that would make any difference. And I have to say that I think it's important to understand that institutionalized or structural racism means that we have black and brown police officers who come out of the system just as... Unfortunately, racialized and racist as white ones, because that's what institutionalized racism does. It means that it means that black and brown people come out of the system, unfortunately, just as racist, with just uh, with as much of the same baggage and internal hatred and stereotypes
0: as white people. That blue wall transcends race. Well, and thank, absolutely. And, and thank you, Amrita, for it, that. And, and it
1: absolutely of, does. It's very, very important yes. that we realize that these these structures, these institutions affect black people and brown people just as much as they do white people.
0: Yeah, and many times we talk about diversifying or adding diversity to police um. Uh, departments and that sort mean, of thing it
1: doesn't change things well, you don't address the
0: structures it really doesn't and that was the thing i was getting to um growing up uh, i grew up in an, a different town and we were happy to have black police officers but many of us know that oftentimes those black officers were rougher on us than, some, than in many cases than the white officers um, talk
1: to the talk to the people who live in Ferguson, and they'll tell you that the black police officers were worse yes. than the white ones.
0: Now, and we identify some issues and, and problems and talk about it. I I know we're not going to solve world peace issues this evening. We no. can do it, Jim. Um, we can but, do it, Jim. But are we? Are we? Can we discuss or head towards some sort of a resolution or solution of this? And I know we won't get there tonight. Um, is there something that that we could talk about solution how do we get past the institutional institutionalized part um the historical part the 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 white privilege part um the extension of i'm a white person i call the police i expect them to do my bidding if you will um how do we get past that if, if there is a way
4: I would love to take this because, you know, we, we mentioned that that I'm a BLM activist. Jennifer sets on the court council as well. We're already working on a program here locally to, uh, for folks not to make that call to 9-1 and to give them options. Um, we'll, we'll find them saying that, that the master's tools will never, uh, you know, destroy the master's house. So we need to change the system of policing. We need to divest. We need to give people other options. Before 911, people called individual numbers. It was a, a hindrance, but we may need to go back to systems where people know their neighbors where well, they know options rather than calling 911 when they know to to educate them so they know when it's appropriate to call 911. And the the situation with me there was, there was no emergency, there was no violence, there had been no crime. It wasn't something that 911 needed to be there. It's it's not only a, a hindrance to, to me and and potentially jeopardizes my life, but also it, it's a weight on the community as a whole. We have people who can't get 911 that need 911 cuz 911 is backed up. Right. We have a situation where we just need an ambulance, and instead of getting an ambulance, we get four police officers and an ambulance and a fire truck. It's not the best way to utilize our resources as a community. It affects my life as a black person, and it through that 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 intersectionality, as as King said, that that uh, inescapable network of mutuality. It affects white people too. They they need to you know to, if my grandfather's had a heart attack, I need him to get care as quickly as he can, and if someone is on the line calling the police on someone who hasn't done anything, that's gonna slow down the process.
2: Well, right. you, I was just handed uh, a note by our producer, and he has a very good question, uh point to be made. So when you call 911, they respond by saying, this is 911, what is your emergency? So it, it, it's, it kinda starts the whole, this is an emergency process right there, regardless of uh, the reason for calling.
4: And that's exactly right. Folks need to be trained to understand when a, the, a situation is in an emergency. And, and, and that's, at this point in American history, that's very difficult because we, we've, we've all been so programmed that, that the, to call the police, that the police are the good guys. And what this does is also it jeopardizes police officers. They're put in situations that, that, that they don't necessarily need to be in, and, 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 they, and they won't yield the best outcome. You know, sometimes we need a mental health professional to come in and, and help someone uh, de escalate. Right. And we don't always right. need a police officer because you can't expect a police officer to, to be master of, of all trades. You know, th- they can only do what their training allows them. And they're not social workers. But unfortunately, in our society, they often have to be.
2: And and that's not fair to them
4: or the people that they serve.
2: Amrita, I have a question for you, real quick. Um, sure. Do you think police officers sometimes use microaggressions to escalate the situation so that they can justify their use of force?
1: Why are you asking me for that? <laughs> you
2: know, I was going to say that, too.
0: <laughs>
2: hey, Marita, because I know you have an answer for it.
0: Well, and, and I think she looks at that as somewhat rhetorical, and it's a good question. <laughs> um, but one of the things that... that I personally and I, I hope this is broader than that I think you have to understand that we expect a lot from police officers we talk about training but when you go back into some historical things um, some of where we are here police are about enforcement and control and however we get to that that's the bottom line I think in many police forces, in many individual officers so and basically it is submit yeah, you know, it, 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 do you think I'm correct in that or, or looking at it that way?
1: Well, it, it, I think the thing—the thing that really does bother me is the thing—is the fact that police officers are actually supposed to go into situations to de-escalate them. That's actually their their first job is to actually try to bring situations down. And what I find extremely troubling is that most of them end up making situations worse.
0: Well, And if they... and that's,
1: that's, that's what I find absolutely bizarre about so many of these situations, is that they are trained to, like, bring situations under control. And I'm like, what is going on with so many of our officers that they seem to be not just like they almost seem to like some of them, not all of them, seem to relish like amping up situations. Like what? Who are we inviting into our into our police departments? Right. Like you know, it it really just it really is. We cannot expect them to be all and do all. I absolutely agree with that. But I seriously wonder about our screening procedures. That that some of these some of these men and women seem to be um, a little bit you know uh, they seem to sort of be chasing they seem to be really glorifying and amplifying these situations which which really gives me pause and for concern quite
4: frankly so this is one of the issues police militarization is is an issue that BLM has been tackling head on and so two of the issues that I would bring out is Uh, community neighborhood policing for Bloomington, Indiana in particular or city police department. None of those officers live in city limits. Uh, In Indiana, there's actually a state law that says we can't require them to. Uh, That's problematic. Uh, So that would be something that we need to change. Another thing is that that we've made a lot of policing about having a military background now i come from a a family family of military folks generations back and a lot of them work in emergency services in one way or the other but i know that military training is about escalation of force it's about overcoming that enemy with greater strength so when you have people that have been in, this, in, this, in the military for years that have that mindset that, that we overcome the enemy, to bring them into a situation where they have to be the, the peace officer, as, as they should be, and de-escalate that situation, situation is totally counterintuitive to the years of training that they've had.
0: Okay, and if I could jump in here, we have a few minutes left, and, and again, for our audience, we're talking this evening with IU professor and Bring It On contributor Dr. Amrita Myers and local Black Lives Matter activist Vox Booker as well as um, future co-anchor here on Bring It On uh, Miss Jennifer Crossley. Oh she's Um, here now. Yeah she's here now. (laughs) Now we've got just a couple minutes Vox and and Amrita so if you could take a minute or so and kind of
4: I, I hate to even
0: do that, but sum up some yeah. of what we've talked about or give us some of your final thoughts that, that hopefully we can and take and grow grow with. Uh,
4: I think it's a lot about iconography. Uh, in America, policing is there. You can look at Norman Rockwell and see police officers. It, it, it's We've been trained to see them as the good guy and the solution. Uh, we need to, to change the roles in our community and how we view them. I'm not saying that we need to put them in a negative light because I don't think we do. I just think we need to realize that there was an appropriate place for policing and that we need some other community-based uh, solutions to help solve issues that aren't appropriate for policing. We need to all ask ourselves about the biases that we have. Uh, I'm... I'm a, a, you know, a, a, a cisgendered uh, a man, and, and, and I'm going to have my own set of bias with that. So it's about doing that process, walking to be woke. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to change. It's not going to be that we, we have a bunch of mixed-race children. It's going to be that we <laughs> put in the woke to change our <laughs> culture.
0: Okay, thank you. Amrita, you got about a minute or less. I hate to put pressure <laughs> on you, but let us hear your thoughts.
4: I think
1: that this is actually a nation that's incredibly over-policed. When you look at the, this is a a nation that actually has uh, an incredibly large number of police uh, compared to the number of people. When you look at Bloomington and you look at the number of police forces that we have, we have IUPD, we have Bloomington police, we have Monroe County, we have, State troopers. It's mind-boggling how many police we have for this one little community. For for our just one example, this is a nation that has the largest number of incarcerated persons. Right, we have all of millions of people sitting in in prison for minor drug offenses. For example, we are an incredibly in, oh, incarcerated <laughs> nation and an incredibly over-policed country. We call 911 for all kinds of wrong reasons. Um, and and we are in we have a police forces that are over militarized with all kinds of nonsense at their disposal in terms of weapons uh tanks etc um so when people talk about the united states being a very violent culture i would say you need to look at from the top down don't look at like forget looking at the citizens look at the, look at our police forces look at our prisons look at where it begins and look at our history look at where it began look at the history of slavery look at the way look at our, our settler colonial history and where that violence began and look at the history we, that we're refusing to examine right until we are willing to look at that culture look at that history and face it head on instead of sticking our heads in the sand and refusing to examine it until we're really willing to face that head on and willing to sit down and talk to each other about these uncomfortable topics of race and racism and bias and these things that we don't want to discuss we're not going to be able to move past these things once we're willing to have these honest discussions about where these things all stem from and arose our, that's our, the only way we're going to be able to move past them
0: all right thank you for that well, um also, also, Rita, and, and, and william will get to and i do know jennifer had something to say i'm just sorry we're just about out of time for that Um looking forward to continue our discussion Um, Go ahead,
2: William. Amrita, you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. In in fact, I couldn't have said it. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) I will say our thanks to IU professor and bringing on contributor Dr. Amrita Myers, who never disappoints. I told you that earlier today. And local Black Lives Matter activist Mr. Vox Rush Booker for joining us to dissect this conundrum of why white Americans call the police on black people in public spaces.
0: And I will give my little two cents that I have, have have gotten to know Vox a little bit more, and he's way more than just a Black Lives Matter activist. Yes. So Bring It On also has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff, and that address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton@wfhb.org. at wfhb.org.
2: For our continuing salute to summer, you just heard Hot Fun in the Summertime, sung by the legendary Sly, the Family Stone.
0: This is Bring It On, the People's Forum for Black Culture in South Central Indiana and beyond. Are you a tweeter? You're invited to follow the WFHB News Twitter account. This is a great way to get breaking news and updates on what's going on behind the scenes and on the air with WFHB News. Go to twitter.com and search for WFHB News. Or you can always visit WFHB's news website at wfhb.org slash news.
2: Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB, 91.3 FM and live on the web at wfhb.org. It's uh, time to bring you the latest in our calendar items. <clears throat> Saturday, June 23rd, 5 to 9 p.m., Mama Minnie's Juke Joint. $15 per person, 25 per couple. The location is Don Owens' fraternal order of police lodge number 88, 2450 North Curry Pike. All proceeds go to the res- to Resilience Stories of Monroe, coming October 11th through the 14th this year at the Unitarian Universalist Church.
0: All right, and another event that we love promoing is camp soul s-o-u-l and their final concert which is directed by ignacio miles this will be friday june 15th at 11 a.m admission is free and it will be located at wilkie center auditorium at 150 north rose avenue Um, come on out here our young folks perform display what they've learned um, and and give you a dose of professionalism and it will rock your soul.
2: It was awesome last year. Yeah, yeah,
0: every year. And
2: continuing a little bit out of order here, June 22nd is the second annual Monroe County Black Democratic Caucus Juneteenth fundraiser. Um, Friday, June 22nd, 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. at Griffin Realty, 735 South College Avenue here in Bloomington. And with that, If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Okay, and again, our thanks are to IU professor and
0: bringing on contributor Dr. Amrita Myers and local Black Lives Matter activist Fox Booker for joining us to dissect this conundrum of why white Americans call the, black or call the police on black people in public spaces.
2: Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. Our board engineer is Chris Martin. No relation. Our original theme music was created by Jamil F.M. with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea.
0: And I am still Jim Sims.
2: Tune in next Monday, June 18th at 6
0: p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community
2: radio station, WFHB. So were you trying to mess me up or what?